All right, Christopher here. Welcome to Do Explain. Before we begin, I'd like to thank my current supporters who inspire me to carry on with this project and make it financially viable as well. I'm very grateful to all of you. Big hugs. And while I'm not in the business of telling people what to do, I can't share my vision for Do Explain going forward. I like to work on the podcast full time instead of just a few days a month. I want to build a real platform for the fun and friendly exchange of interesting ideas. And I want to do it ad-free, if possible, because I don't want any ideas to be off-limits for us to explore, and I also want to keep saying dumb shit without repercussions. But to do this, I'll need a steady income, and that's why I need your help. So if you enjoy what I'm doing here, and you want to join me in my vision and become a part of growing this project, consider going over to patreon.com slash doexplain and sign up to become a monthly supporter. All right. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoy this episode. Yeah, okay. My butt crack is really sweaty, so that's a good sign, right? Okay, we're gonna keep that deposit. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I'm gonna put this in the beginning before the music. Where, like, just find a way. Just, <laughs> just listen to the podcast once and see if you can find a spot to place that for maximum effect. All right, so today I'm speaking with Carlos de la Guardia. Carlos is a researcher and musician looking to make minds, as in actually programming minds on computers, and make music. He's also worked in robotics, data science, and longevity research. He's one interesting son of a bitch, huh? So I'm here with Carlos. Carlos, welcome on the podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. No, this has been a... uh, a long time coming, man. I've been, uh, like you mentioned before the podcast, I've been busy. I've been pushing it forward, but uh, I'm really excited to talk to you, man. So welcome. How are you doing? Doing well, doing well. Yeah. What time is it there in uh, Texas, right? Uh, it's two past high noon, as we say here. And we always say high noon, not just noon, because it's Texas and it's the West, you know? <laughs> right. So it's sunscreen hour. Oh, you know, cowboys don't wear sunscreen. Yeah, that's true. I would actually respect you more if you were doing this whole interview in a uh, cowboy hat. I wish I was cool enough to do that. I haven't reached that level yet, but I'm getting there. It's just that there's no sun here in Sweden, so it'd be even worse. Yeah, well, I mean, it's not necessary to actually wear the hat anymore because it's just like a spiritual thing. Like, it's inside you, the hat. (laughs) (laughs) Right. The cowboy hat inside you, that's a... The title for the episode right there, man. I like that. <laughs> sure. But um, no, so I, I mean, I mentioned a lot of cool stuff uh, about you there in the beginning. And uh, I think the coolest thing about you, uh, as far as I know, is you are a fellow cult member. We both belong to the same cult, which is the Congratulations Cult, uh, the Comedian Crystalia's podcast. And uh, w- would you consider yourself a member of that, or am I just attributing that to you without your permission? <laughs> uh, you may be more towards the latter than the former, uh, so I'm not oh. sure how culty I am. But I right. say that like, I do send you clips of him a lot, so that's true. Uh, <laughs> exactly. I was just going to say, you're curating my comedy feed with his stuff all the time. I've seen that on um, on Twitter as well, <laughs> which I love because you're sending it to people who probably have no idea what the memes actually are from and why they're hilarious. 
Well, I mean, the, the, like the gifs of his podcast are uh, like it doesn't actually matter like what he's saying in the podcast. Like that, that context is isn't actually relevant because uh, like just like uh, the one I always tend to put on um, on Twitter is when where he's just being like, yes, you know, he's just very exclamatory yeah. <laughs> and, and that kind of thing, which I think it's just it's funny looking, but also just a fun celebratory kind of thing to throw in. Um, that just makes a point. Like, I think it's just a good illustration of that feeling of like victory. Yes. Wonderful. Um, so that's why I put it there. Yeah. No, I, I'm, I'm with you on that, but also there's an added element when you know how Crystal Lee says, yes, when he's uh, happy about something in the podcast. It's just better with the context, I think. <laughs> but, um, yeah. So for people who don't know, it's, um, Crystal Lee is a comedian and he has this podcast. I just think it's the best podcast uh, out there. I think it's, uh, I've listened to all his episodes, I think four to five times. He's just, to me, I, I haven't thought of this before, but he kind of embodies the epistemological principles that we talk a lot about on this podcast of non-coercion, following the fun, the fun criterion. He's just uh, unpol- unapologetically himself in a way that's, um, yeah, I just find it really funny. And uh, I'm glad to be able to share that with someone here on the podcast for once interesting i mean i hadn't really thought of um any philosophical angle on what he does other than to say that like it's just it's just funny and uh yeah (laughs) like like, the good thing that the thing that makes a good performer of any kind is somebody who is sort of unique and stands out in some way and uh he has lots of those elements uh where you just see him on his own podcast or another podcast just pronouncing words a certain way even (laughs) <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Just it's got its own language of spin like there, there's a language element where he kind of changes around words and stuff but uh also just saying words in a certain way with a little bit of spin and edge on them or whatever i, to, I guess you know one thing it's entertaining but uh one of the reasons perhaps is that like in saying a word in a slightly different way you're almost like breaking a taboo in a way um it's not really breaking mm. a taboo but it's the same kind of thing where like people notice if you're from a different country and you say a word ever so slightly differently. And in that case, it's by accident. But when you know somebody is from your own country, any such difference is either regional and accidental, uh, or it's like on purpose, which is true in his case, where he's like throwing that spin on the word. And so it adds meaning, uh, despite not changing like literally the word, it changes just the pronunciation of it. And what's cool about that is just like, yeah, how subtle those differences are sometimes, but how you know, noticeable they are too, and how much they add to the thing. That's interesting. Yeah, I hadn't thought of that. But there, there is, yeah, there is, at least uh, to me, what, what really attracts me to his demeanor is, and now, yeah, yeah, this whole podcast is going to be about Chris Leah, by the way. So everyone uh-huh. listening is just going to be us <laughs> talking about how great he is. No, but uh, the, the reason I brought it up now is because Chris, he just does his own thing. I think w- what I aspire to do in my own life and one of my main goals is to be a pure expression of, of myself, whoever I am, without the, I guess you could always say you're always yourself with or without any hangups. But I mean the unrestricted, creative, fun and happy, loving self uh, that I am in my best moments. I, I just want to be like a piece of music, like just this flowing process. And people don't have to like that style of music. All people are not going to like it, but at least I'm really doing my own thing. Like I'm my own genre. 
And I think that's what he's great at and what I love about him. But uh, he, he recently got canceled, as it were, or he was off for eight months or so. Yeah, he wasn't producing any content. And I don't want to go into the specifics of what he was accused for, but I do think it's interesting to think about separating the art from the artist. Because I still love Chris. I love his comedy. And uh, I happen to believe he he isn't guilty. I don't, I don't see any evidence of that or any good explanations for that. But let's say he was guilty, or let's take someone more clear like Louis C.K., who, who was guilty of something. And I still think they're really funny. I think their work, their ideas, what they're putting out is great. And I haven't given this a lot of thought, but I'm curious what you think about yeah, how do you separate the art from the artist? Should you? Should you listen to Chris D'Elia if he's guilty of something bad? Yeah, how do you think about that? I guess there's the whole, uh, you know, famous Karl Popper quote, uh, observation is theory-laden. And uh, mm. in this case, when it comes to like a joke, let's say, uh, some of what goes into a joke sometimes is the psychology of the teller of the joke. That, that contributes to your understanding as the listener. Of the joke, right? The person who might laugh, and so if somebody is playing a character where they're dumb, let's say, and that is what makes the joke funny, but then something breaks that illusion, and you think of them as smart, the joke might not work anymore. You know, like a smart person saying it doesn't have the same ring to it. Um, it comes off like uh, they're doing something intentionally rather than making a mistake, uh, and that's no longer maybe a joke anymore. So that would be an example of how your theory of the person telling you the joke. Uh, affects kind of the whole thing, affects whether it's funny. Right. A different case is like Bill Cosby. So that's a case where somebody had very serious accusations and, and you know, went through the whole thing and like got put in jail, I guess, and all that. Um, and so th this question came up in Comedians and Cars Getting Coffee, uh, Jerry Seinfeld show. And they said, what do you think of Bill Cosby? Um, you know, uh, like Norm MacDonald, I think, said like Bill Cosby was his favorite comedian. He has a whole bit about how you know, it's like, I didn't, they didn't tell me he was a rapist uh, in the liner notes of the albums. I just saw the albums. So it was funny. <laughs> uh, if I had known that, I wouldn't know, you know. But uh, so that question came up. And I think Seinfeld's answer was something like um, Cosby's whole thing was his niceness and his grandfatherliness. That was the shtick. So if the jokes were independent of that, then, you know, if they were just like one-liners that had nothing to do with him, let's say, maybe they would still work. Like, you would just say the joke, and who cares that it's from the guy who was a criminal? But if it's like the whole thing is a vibe you're putting out and a senior setting and a person that you are, and that contributes to why the joke is funny, and then that whole personality is ruined or shown to be a, a, a false uh, thing, and you can no longer even ignore the allegations once you know them. Or not, not even allegations, like in that case, but the, the actual crimes. Um, so if you can't separate them, then I think the joke can be ruined. But as I said before, one-liners might not be. It depends on the relationship between the joke and the uh, and the teller, I suppose. Okay, yeah, I, I would agree with that. But I think that that is more a question of, is it still funny or not? And, and, and like you're saying, you're ruining some inexplicit stuff there, some theories you have about the person that makes the joke funny or not. But if we talk purely morally then, is it wrong for me, let's say that, uh, yeah, for, for instance, Louis C.K., he admitted that he had done what he was accused of doing. Now, it isn't as bad as Harvey Weinstein, or Weinstein, I never remember, but 
Yeah, I, I, I listened to some podcast that Louis put out after that. Uh, I'm not sure if it was actually you who sent me that. Am I making that up? Like Louis had some uh, some new podcast come up with some girl he was talking to, right? Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. It's um, yeah, I think I recall. Yeah, yeah. And so uh, I thought that was funny. I I know what he did. Is it morally wrong for me to enjoy that, to listen to that? Or maybe it's not as as black and gray as that or black and white as that. But to take an extreme example, if we take, let's say we both found out <laughs> that David Deutsch was a Nazi sympathizer, 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 what's it called? Nazi, Sympath- no, 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 Nazi synthesizer. <laughs> hey, nice. A Nazi sympathizer, right? Sympathizer. Full disclosure, been at work, taken 70 customer calls today, brains fried. All right. Enjoy. So that's, it's all good. But yeah, no, but, but, but let's say that. Is it wrong for me to then be really excited about the ideas in his books and me having this podcast about them? Uh, well, again, in that case, like if, uh, if, Hitler discovered the cure for cancer. We still want the cure for cancer. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. You know. So uh, there again, the question is between the relationship of the thinker and the thought. And in that case, the abstraction is either you know, or is independent of the thinker. Uh, yeah. The joke, the slight complication, is that when, when someone tells a joke, they do more than just tell you words. The delivery matters, and the whole situation matters. Like the same exact performance doesn't make sense in sunlight that might make sense at, at night in a dark room, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So like, there's a whole situation there that makes something funny. And so you can change any of those bits and pieces. And often this does happen in the course of comedy and it breaks the funniness and people have a hard time explaining why sometimes, but it can happen. And yeah, when it comes to like, again, the theory behind the joke, if <laughs> I, I've done this on Twitter sometimes and somebody says something that, um, it kind of sounds it kind of sounds true or interesting or or deep or something but then it really depends how you take it like it's just too vague it's like you know follow your life's dream or something like yeah <laughs> like for example like and then I, sometimes i like to put underneath that I, i'll repeat the quote in quotes and then i'll, I'll put under it like hitler because <laughs> it's like it's like suddenly yeah. the whole like it's the same words but your theory of yeah. what is going on is like don't follow your dreams hitler <laughs> please don't yeah <laughs> Yeah, but isn't that that's great that you do that by the way. I like that. Because because that's what we've talked about before in this community about how it's about the ideas. It's not about the people. And we're discussing uh the truth of the world, we're not discussing the people uh, in particular. But so at the same time, I I do think we should do that more. I think we we conflate the ideas with people way too much. And that's why we have the whole cancel culture thing going on right now. But at the same time, there's something in there where if someone is doing an obvious moral wrong, even an illegal one, I mean, you are somehow implicitly supporting them if you're continually monetizing their work and helping them out indirectly in some sense, wouldn't you say? There's an element of that. Sure. I mean... um... It's worth noting that like the the general thing is perhaps easiest to say here, which is that it, it may be that rules are the wrong way entirely to think about morality, which I think is kind of what we're skirting up against here, which is that like you say so and so got accused, therefore don't ever pay them. Yeah, no nuance. 
Well, it's not even about nuance. Like it could be as nuanced as you want. It could be a thousand page document. Uh, that's not so much uh, the issue. Uh, the issue is that it's like a, it's just a fixed rule. And following rules isn't what morality is about. It's about confronting a set of options uh, for what to do next and choosing among them using various criteria, some of which are very you know, universal. It might be like about utilitarianism or whatever, and some of them which might be specific, like, you know, you don't like this kind of thing, you like that kind of thing, you're not quite sure why. Lots of things go into deciding between options and creating those options. And rules are a way of saying, like, let's not create any more options or new ways of deciding among them. Just apply the rule. Mm. Well, that's not really the thing. Um, so if you give me a situation, I could try to do my best and I might get it wrong. But I would be mistaken to the extent that I try to just follow a rule. Yes, because the rule is just another moral theory. And you might be wrong about that, like you said. Well, it's not even a theory. It could be based on theories, though. And But I, I guess it's... Maybe a little harsh to say you shouldn't follow rules. I mean, by the way, it's uh, sometimes rules can be a very useful thing, I guess. But I guess you kind of have to know how, how to think about them. In the same way that like plans are almost the same kind of thing. It's like it's like a thing you make. You can make a plan. You can make a rule. And it's not that those are useless exactly, but you shouldn't expect a plan to hold true forever and to be right. You might learn something in the meantime, and you shouldn't expect a rule to always work either. So they could be useful, and maybe sometimes you want to follow them, but they're just a, a dumb thing you made. Like, they can't handle anything hmm. new. Right. So they can be useful as a heuristic for the problem situation you're in right now, and the knowledge you have right now. But yeah, as new knowledge is created and new problems arise, it might be obsolete in a week or six months or whatever. Yeah, because laws are rules. You know, so I mean, yeah, there is a there is a place, but laws change. Oh, so you want laws? That's where we differ, I suppose. You're one of those. <laughs> you don't? <laughs> no, I'm just being. It's the fried brain again, bro. I thought that was funny in my head, but <laughs> and you were sorely mistaken. But you, I think you were, <laughs> you were confused yeah. with uh, with in laws. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, man. Hey, you should start your own comedy podcast, bro. This is great. I love that. No, so uh, I want to start with your newsletter, which I am a huge fan of, and uh, it's called Making Minds and Making Progress, and that's a great title. I just figured that out today when I was looking at it, that it's uh, a really good title, and uh, your description of that, if you go to, if you Google it, the first page that comes up there is, how do minds work? How can we create them artificially? What gets in the way of creativity, joy, and progress, and what encourages them? And uh, yeah, that's a great t-shirt. It, it kind of encapsulates a lot of my own interests and what's uh, taking up mo most time in my life right now thinking about these things, mostly the, the latter part of that. But so uh, it would be fun if you could just explain to us a little bit how this, yeah, what what the uh, newsletter is about, how it came about, and 
yeah, what your central interests are. Uh, sure. Yeah, it came about as, um, I guess, uh, uh, the, the simple thing to say is it's just kind of an experiment to see if I would like it. Um, I always kind of thought writing would be a good idea, and uh, I'm somewhat mixed about writing, incidentally. Maybe you can get into that if you want. But mm. uh, at any rate, I did a few of them, and I kind of enjoyed it, and then I took a long break for a while. <laughs> Uh, yeah. <laughs> not to any accusations, but uh, just <laughs> not into it. But uh, but yeah. So the um, the idea is to get into how minds work, and more generally, the knowledge based view of the world that mm. I kind of learned of through David Deutsch's book, The Beginning of Infinity, and um, which uh, I think most people listening to this will have uh, read or heard of, or been encouraged to read by somebody. And um, yeah, so I I had thought about that stuff as being about epistemology and you know uh that that's where it gets thrown around to describe those sets of ideas sometimes but i also read a book by thomas Sowell called knowledge and decisions and i remember thinking like oh how cool that he takes kind of this again like knowledge-based view of the world though he's not particularly into epistemology let's say i don't know that he ever talks about it maybe he does but i haven't actually read the book i've only <laughs> skimmed through it no. <laughs> okay. I, like, I like the front page and um the intro is very good as well, but <laughs> uh, I've read a lot of books like that. But at any rate, the um, cool thing about it was that he took this knowledge-based view of things. He said, let's ignore the, let's say, maybe incentives or traditional ways of describing economic situations, and let's just look at the knowledge. Where does the knowledge come from? And uh, when a situation occurs, what knowledge is brought to bear on it? That's a very particular way to view a situation and, and a problem and so on. So as soon as I saw his book as well, I thought, oh, like maybe that's actually a, a handier description than epistemology, it's sort of this knowledge-based view of the world. And um, it's something you can always take because everything we care about depends on knowledge and knowledge creation. If you flew in a spaceship, someone had to figure out how to make it. Um, if you want to have dinner, same thing. Um, everything you care about, every relationship, every word you speak depends on knowledge. Uh, so things that have to do with how knowledge works and how it's created, uh, things like how conflicts arise and are resolved, um, and whether that's done in a rational way or an irrational way based on the ideas or on some arbitrary property of their sort of their source or some rule, uh, that that matters and those kinds of things apply everywhere. And so the newsletter is kind of a way to just say, it's kind of a way to acknowledge that it's not just about. AGI, you know, artificial general intelligence, or any particular thing. Like it's it's this very general thing, and you can take that knowledge based view of anything. And so that's in part me trying to take that view of certain things like minds and like evolution and other things like that. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I remember you. I don't know which newsletter it was. I was trying to go back in my email inbox and. Uh, read up on them a little bit, but I didn't have the particular one where you outlined, and I'm just assuming you remember this, but I think you made three different, uh, you made a distinction between three different things there that you were interested in. I think it was something like, yeah, how minds work, how they work at a societal level when they interact. And do you remember what I'm talking about, those three? Uh, let me see. Um, so it was in a particular uh, essay I wrote? Yeah, I think it was the second. You were kind of describing, uh, yeah, what what your main interests are and what you want to explore with this newsletter. Could you read those three for me? Because I really resonate with that. 
I mean, I could I could read a paragraph of one of my essays if you want me to do that. I could yeah, let's it plug it. Accent. Let's do that. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> while it's easy to support violence when it occurs, it's less easy to see when one person coerces another with social pressure, forcing them to do things they don't want to. It can be even harder to see when ideas in a single mind are clashing in the same way. When ideas about productivity, say, silence those about leisure, or vice versa. Uh, conflicts can occur between people or between ideas in a single mind or between different versions of yourself at different times. The schedule you set yesterday may get in the way of opportunities you see today. Uh, your goals for the future may do the same. And I go on beyond that. And uh, Hey, man, what is it about the accent, the sound of the uh, the words you're uttering. The content is the exact same, but when you're British, you sound oh so smart. You sound very, very um, pretentious, even. And when you're doing the Texas accent, you sound so fucking dumb for no reason. I don't know what it is okay. about it. I, I don't want to alarm you, but uh, you've just been canceled. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It might be. It might be so. That's why I'm doing the Patreon thing from the beginning. So I have no sponsors that can <laughs> you, leave. You, no, I'm sorry. I angered the most heavily armed group. Of people. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, no, that was a little harsh. But um, no, but no, but you know I what I mean? It just mean. there's something there that just makes you sound. I don't know what it is. There's a stereotype yeah, okay. that says Southerners don't make uh, aren't smarter or something. And so it's like <laughs> when right. I say something like. So anyway, when you look at the uh, Dirac delta function, and, uh, you take the, uh, <laughs> the derivative, uh, the second derivative actually, you take that and if you look at the logarithms and their exponentiations, you start to see that the uh, quantum fluctuations are pretty extraordinary. You, I, can, I can actually do it different ways. Just as an aside, there, just like there are many British accents, there are many Southern accents, and some of them are more refined than others, as you can imagine. And so I could say... It's real nice talking to you, uh, Christopher. That's real nice. Or I could say like, it's been real nice talking to you, Christopher. Man, it's it's been it's been ball game, man. Yeah, right? yeah. That's the it's underbite and the uh, gap in your teeth right there. Yeah. No, but but it's interesting how much uh, implicit stuff that tonality, something as seemingly simple as tonality and voice. Uh, can project. I'm actually, I'm working in customer service over the phone right now. And so the one thing I have to work with is the projection of my voice. And I mean, it's the same on the podcast here, but it's uh, extremely different uh, how people respond to you, depending on what you convey subconsciously with your voice, with your tonality, with your pausing, with your tempo. And uh, yeah, that's something I'm really interested in, actually. I wish I was better at accents because it's just... It's such a fun tool to have to be able to switch between them. You seem to be good at it. I know Charlie, uh, who we know, Charlie Youngham is fucking great at that too. But, um, but so I want to get back to what you said there. I, I want to touch on, uh, AGI. I know we got some Twitter questions that we're going to get into later. And I know you're working specifically on AGI. Uh, so I want to get into that, but I actually want to linger a little bit on the whole idea of, when it comes to comedy, what is it? Do, do you think that comedy humor is something that is inherent to people, like something that's universal? Or do you think it's something parochial to us? Like would, a, would a, an artificial person have humor by default, by just being a creative entity? Or 
I guess not. I I just want to answer my own question because some people don't have humor. <laughs> some people, okay. uh, humans. But uh, yeah, do you see what I mean? Uh, well, I mean, even people who you would say are humorless might. That's probably a bit harsh. I'm guessing that, like, in some yeah, sense, yeah. they would, you know, laugh at their enemies decapitation or whatever it is like whatever they, they yeah yeah uh, <laughs> we bring that yeah. to uh, schadenfreude or whatever um but uh but yeah i, I mean uh daniel dennett and um colleagues some colleagues of his uh, wrote a book called inside jokes uh which i guess is uh yeah it's about humor and kind of the theory of it i haven't read it um i've read parts of it so i can't really uh claim to um offer you his insights but uh yeah i mean it seems like if you compared it to like rock climbing or something, you'd say, well, like, sure, like you may not be a rock climber, but you could be uh, if you wanted to be. So maybe it's mm. the same kind of thing. It's like, hey, if I show you jokes and how they work, maybe you'll start getting it. He goes a bit further. Uh, I think that the ideas in that book and uh, maybe uh, of those that generally study this this thing view it as being kind of a, an evolved trait in the same way that you might be able to recognize faces. Like being able to recognize faces is a seriously useful thing. And that's why we evolved to be very efficient at it. Um, there are things like faces that you would think, you know, are equivalent in their ability to store information, but they're meaningless to us. Like we can't really, like even other animals' faces, like seem the same to us. So only human faces really do we have this great um, subtle adaptation for. And that came from somewhere because it was useful. And their theory in part is that um, the same is true of humor, that there is a particular kind of computation happening there that uh, is really non-trivial and is really useful. Like, like if I tell somebody, like, uh, uh, my mom at one point told me uh, at some point, like, uh, she said, oh, I'm going to go visit my friend, you know, whatever. Let's call her Susan or something. I'm going to go visit Susan. And uh, then I said something like, oh, Susan, it's her birthday? I forgot all about it. I haven't gotten her anything. <laughs> so, like, if you laugh even there just out of kindness, uh, it's for having recognized that, like, why the hell would I care about this friend of hers who I, I probably don't know? Uh, like, there's a whole wrongness about that situation that, again, regardless of how funny that joke actually is, you recognize the incongru incongruity at least immediately. And so there's a question, how did you do that and why? And is that useful in general? Like, maybe it's jokes are this byproduct. Maybe it's, you know, not a byproduct. Maybe it's you specifically evolve something for jokes or maybe it's just that general process of being on the lookout for things that don't quite make sense because uh, that seems pretty useful once you phrase it that way but isn't that uh, doesn't that risk edging into uh, evolutionary psychology slightly because it also involves a lot of i mean it's dependent on knowledge right or are you saying there are implicit rules there somehow that we're born with or yeah, I mean, uh, what I just said is more a claim about like, so your initial question was, would such and such an alien have it, uh, let's say, or an AGI? Uh, would they have it? Would they not have it? Uh, in our case, it seems like we have it partly because uh, we evolved to have a certain kind of process in our brains that was always at work. So maybe it's a case that every mind has some such process, and that's the only way that you can really navigate the world with any you know, effectiveness is to always be kind of on the lookout for things that don't make sense and, and quickly too. Like it's not enough that it, it just happens. It has to be like immediate for you to actually evade the lion and, and whatever, like that kind of reaction to happen. So that's an argument that it's useful and would therefore be present in any kind of effective intelligence. But 
maybe if you turn the knobs a little bit uh, of evolutionary history, um, it wouldn't have turned out the same way. We might not not have had that. And maybe if we were ever as a race of or a species of, uh, of humans to have humor, maybe it would be something we discover in a billion years. Like, you know, maybe it would be like if we didn't have ears, we wouldn't have had music until we met aliens right. and somehow figured out that like, oh, if you do this thing, then, you know, if we, you give ourselves artificially this ability to hear things, um, then you can create music. You know, m- maybe it's not something that just came out of the savannah that we just had when we started, but it depended on some hardware that we invented late in our history. Um, so maybe that's possible of humor as well. Yeah. But if you take something, then I don't know if you could separate these two, I suppose, somewhat. But if you take something like laughter, I mean, and finding humor in things, I feel like there's some intricate connection here with joy where a person who is, uh, let's use the fun criterion, who's effectively creating knowledge, is having fun, is experiencing a lot of joy, also seems to be much closer to laughter. Yeah, you, you don't think it has some, I don't know how to phrase it, that it, th- there is some epistemological function there or some a side effect similar to how joy would be a side effect and indicate something to you in your knowledge creation or something like that. Mm. I see a lot of people without hang-ups seem to laugh a lot more. Do you know what I mean? Well, let's see. I, I guess um, a couple of things maybe there. I mean... One side note, just maybe it's more a caveat than anything, is just that like there are different kinds of laughter. I think that's one point that Dennett makes in in his book. So like you could laugh nervously or whatever. Like it's yeah, yeah, beyond just actually indicating humor. But if we focus on just the okay, the joyous laughter, yeah, that's a particular kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, uh, I'm not really sure to be honest. I mean, I just kind of gave you an account that's my poor man's version of what Dennett kind of has in his book, uh, which is that there's this evolutionary computation thing going on. And it's, if you look at humor from a computational perspective, you can start thinking about why that kind of process, uh, the kind of process that could lead to spotting the incongruities of jokes uh, Mm. could lead to spotting incongruities in, in real life that would also be important. So there's something there. And as far as the connection not just to like practicality, which is kind of what that's about, but to like joy, let's say, in our emotions. Yeah. I'm not really sure. Like it seems plausible. And uh, yeah, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I'm not sure. I like that. We don't have to solve everything on this podcast, right? <laughs> I, you also I want to create that. new problems. Yeah. <laughs> Evading questions is also good. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But you also mentioned music there. And uh, how if we didn't have ears, that might not be something that we... Yeah, how could we know about that, I guess? We have to have some sort of sense input. But uh, what, what what do you think? Because Yeah, that's right. We can internalize. I mean, you can create... Yeah, I guess. I don't know how that works physiologically, so I'm uh, well, going... Well, you can actually, like, if I say, like... Um... Like tinnitus, I was thinking. But I guess there's well, a... Well, no, no. I mean, it, it, like if I just say, imagine like the national anthem. Yeah, 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 yeah. Like, like now there's something going on in your head that has nothing to do with your ears, really. Like you could maybe argue that it got there through the ears, but... And you have whatever, a reference, like, yeah. 
But however it got there, like it's there now in your head and it's music, but it's not involving your ears. That's right. Yeah, you can get a fucking tune stuck in your head all day. And uh yeah. But so so why what do you think about being a musician as well? I um I don't know if I've ever talked about that. I I was obsessed with uh, electric guitar. I wanted to be a professional guitar player from age 6 to age 20 or something. And then some things happened and that that had to change by necessity, but I I could just come home and I could spend 6 hours just improvising to a backing track, laying on the floor, just, I, I don't know what it was. It was just pure joy, pure expression somehow. But what do you think makes us like music so much? What is it that is so interesting about music? And it doesn't seem to fade away either. Sure, you can get bored of the same songs, but it's just something uh, with music that seemed to really resonate with people. But geez, I don't know. I mean, that's uh, <laughs> like with the humor thing and like, this is uh, uh it's almost like the the question of qualia uh, like the hard problem of consciousness in a way it's like why is it like something to be anything like why aren't all these animals and computers and everything just kind of inanimate matter just doing things um mm. why does there have to be a feeling in, in there um it's kind of a similar thing with like art it's like why does it have to be anything that's like beautiful? Like, well, can't it just be things and some of them are red and some of them are black and whatever? And it's just like <laughs> they're there and they work or they don't work. Like, what, why do we get this kick out of things? Um, you know, whence beauty? It's, it's kind of a, a, a weird thing the more you think about it. And you can kind of like imagine like just some grumpy old man saying like, you know, like th th there is an attitude out there, which is like, just, you know, get shit done. Uh, you know, <laughs> yeah. solved, uh, you know, and then at the other end of the spectrum, there's like, well, yeah, there's shit to get done so we can do the real thing, which is enjoy things and, uh, and find things beautiful. Like the only reason that we have the air conditioner and the food and so on is to survive, but we survive because we want to do things with our life, you know? Yeah. Which incidentally is one of the reasons why longevity research is both like in one sense, the most interesting thing and the most valuable thing. And in another sense, the least. <laughs> right right i mean yeah when it comes to music my thinking on the fly here uh attitude is probably that it seems to i don't know i feel like many people uh not all but but a lot of people especially in our circles perhaps are uh more heady or more in their explicit world and uh there seems to be something with music that might Perhaps similar to meditation, what what some people would say meditation is about, helps you somehow interact with the inexplicit and subconscious emotional world in some way. Does that make sense to you? Like, there's a very emotional component to music. I feel like. Yeah, definitely. I could expand on that, I guess, uh, or I don't know if I have actually anything to say about the nature of uh, emotion other than to just agree with you. That's one of the attractions that it's uh, this unusual thing. Like I, I remember having been like in college in like one of these tiny little microscopic study rooms, uh, and just like kind of burned out from studying for a few hours. And then I just put on uh, my headphones and turn off the lights, and I'm in like this dark, cramped space. Just like sitting cross-legged on the floor, I got out of the chair because I was just like tired from sitting at it. And then I just turned on the song and turned it up loud. And I was like, man, like I feel like I'm in this totally other world. And mm. it just feels uh, totally enveloping and engaging. 
and I can like imagine like flying through the stars and all these things like yeah exactly and, like engage your visual senses if you want them to and you can kind of like imagine a story or a visual thing to go along with it and uh, again you can you can give it as much as you want like you can get up and dance if you want to or just even sitting just like somehow like engage your sort of sense of motion and when you do that and then like you take off the headphones like whoa that, that was something different like there's mm. something so special and powerful about that and attractive that you just kind of don't get from most of the things like you don't get that anything like that from a book books are great in their own way but it's just a very different thing yeah i mean it seems to really invite some songs are just like a particular chemical uh substances it's like they they hold the information of a feeling state like a song can be joy when you put it on there's no no other way to feel than joy or uh, the other way around it can really facilitate you feel like you have something in your chest you don't really know what it is and then you hear a sad song and all of a sudden you notice that oh i needed to cry i can give you the permission to 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 feel yeah, I, I really love music. I'm getting back to it now in a way where I haven't been for a while. And it's so cool. We always talk about creativity in these circles. And it's so cool to see how how something like it, it, it's all, all, almost feels, <laughs> I sound like an empiricist now, but it feels like you can really clearly see uh, when you're writing a song how you sit down and you don't have this thing in the world yet and then it seems like music is just streaming out of you it's just being created before your very eyes and you you can't even explicitly know what's going on there and uh so i get how people talk about the muse and and things like that but i just think we're maybe devaluating our own creativity and our own creative capacity but it's it's really concrete when you're uh creating music i think that's really cool I think I have a somewhat different experience with music in a way um, mm. than what you described. Do explain. Yes. <laughs> See what uh, I did Nate, there? Yeah, I saw it. Uh, you can currently support Do <laughs> yes! Explain on Patreon. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and, uh, and I'll get only a, a small portion of that. Yeah, the, the experience that I have is slightly different in the sense that, and maybe this is only a recent thing, but I don't feel like there's this muse thing going on so much. Perhaps because I've gotten somewhat more explicit in how I deal with music after learning to use music notation and having learned a bit more about music composition. Incidentally, if anybody is interested in music composition, I just read a book a few months ago that changed my whole approach. Uh, and it's uh, by a guy named Alan Belkin, and it's uh, called Music Composition, Craft and Art. And uh, it took me from not being able to finish a song to like easily being able to do that. Uh, um, or not easily, but like, I suddenly could do it um, in steps. Like I could figure it, figure it out eventually rather than just getting stuck indefinitely. Mm. Uh, but at any rate, like having seen that book and having used notation now and getting into that, I feel much more like I can look at this thing more abstractly and I can usually come up with an idea that you might almost think of like, okay, this is the muse talking here and you just jam me out the guitar and you come up with something cool. Um, but now what happens is that I, I take that only as the beginning, what as in this book is called like the motif, like it's the, it's the main idea. And then from there, um, I'll then like develop that into like a phrase, let's say. So if the initial idea is like, you know, whatever, it's four bars long or a couple bars long. Now it's like, how do you go from two bars of music 
a cool riff, you know. We watched that yesterday. I love George Constanza and I love Kramer, bro. He's my guy. Fantastic. So exactly. So you take a riff like that. So if I give you the challenge, how do you go from that, let's say four bars of music, to 150? You know, let's say about five minutes, six minutes. Well, now you have a whole bunch of challenges because if you just repeated it, uh, it wouldn't work. It might kind of work if you're a Seinfeld lover, but um, it would be <laughs> in the background pretty soon, I think. So now you have all these interesting problems to deal with. And uh, I, I kind of could tell some of them, but not all of them before. And then I read the book. And now I feel like I have a fairly explicit understanding of like, okay, I have four bars. How do I get 16? How do I, I'm going to repeat the same idea maybe four times, but they've all got to be somewhat different. So what specific differences do I want to have? Do I want to like up the energy, change the key, change the harmony, whatever. So as I'm doing that, it feels very explicit um, and very sort of theory driven and very dependent on specific ideas I have about harmony and melody and, you know, whatever. Uh, it doesn't feel like I'm just kind of jamming, man. No. <laughs> so <laughs> That's my style. <laughs> it's different for different people, but in my case, yeah. it feels a little bit less uh, jammy. But surely you've had that experience of just not even intentionally sitting down to write a song, maybe just picking up your guitar, having a certain feeling stay right now, and then a song just kind of coming out of you without any of that structure to it. Or maybe not. That's 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 an experience I've had where I've just sat down and written a whole song beginning to end because I just had a a, a big emotional event in my life or something like that, and it just seemed to come out out of that like I, I remember like a roommate once pissed me off in college and i took my guitar down to like one of these buildings that has like a uh, <laughs> it has like an odd structure like on the outside of the building it has these pillars and the pillars go up like 10 stories um, okay. and when you walk into this thing it's like a i guess it's just like a two foot by two foot space made of concrete on the outside of this building but that space is almost like a column that goes up 10 stories and so if you play a guitar inside of it uh they used to call this incidentally like the like the the gunshot building because it sounded like a gunshot if you clapped your hands in that space mm. so i took my guitar there after i got pissed off by my roommate <laughs> like he accused me of stealing from him or something and you or played wonderwall for five times in a row yeah <laughs> cool but, dude but yeah i started jammed out there and i was like i was like full of angst i suppose for a moment uh, but then <laughs> after a minute i was like Damn, it's actually kind of good. Like I, I'm surprised yeah, yeah. how well I'm playing just because I'm pissed off right now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. No, I can completely relate to that. That's cool, man. We'll have to, uh, whenever I meet up with you, was this in Texas? Uh, yeah. Yeah, so you'll have to take me there. We can uh, we can have a jam there. But um, <laughs> that's cool, man. It'll be a very so, crap jam. It will look, it'll be a very intimate jam as we're both. Oh, it's small. <laughs> No, that's great. That's great. I'm fairly uh, skinny. So uh, that works for me. Uh, I know that you sent me once, or you, you've sent me a lot of your music. I'm thinking that I might put in a uh, a segment of uh, of your music, like a little pause there for a minute or two. We can showcase some of your stuff here, just for fun.
So yeah, so I want to get back to, uh, I know AGI, many people want to know your thoughts on that. And uh, we reached out on good. Twitter. Well, yeah, yeah. All right. Thanks for today. That was, yeah, no, but so, uh, exactly. So people reached out with some questions and I want to not do what I always do, which is just forget about that and spend the last five minutes or so doing that. So I thought maybe we could, um, actually get into the Twitter questions here very soon. So, uh, there were some good questions there, but, um, I want to just uh, reconnect with something you said in the beginning there that I forgot about, which was you said you had mixed feelings about writing when we were speaking about your newsletter. And I personally have my whole adolescent life had this idyllic image of how writing is cool. I need to be a writer. Now it's turned into more like, yeah, I need to tweet. And I look at people like Luli, our common friend who is great at that. And I just love her tweet threads. But I fucking hate writing, man. I don't, I love conversation. I love talking. I love when it's more off the cuff and it's not so edited. And writing is not my thing. And I, I've started to realize that I don't, I don't have to write shit if I don't want to. But yeah, how do you view writing? It sounded like maybe you have some some similar issue there or is it completely different? Uh, it's, it's related, I think. It's, it's, it's odd, like I'm, in two minds about this because uh, on the one hand, as you say, like there's an allure and romanticism about writing, but there's also just the fact that like a lot of the people whose ideas you most respect <laughs> will have delivered their ideas to you via writing. So you're like looking at them almost like there's a window pane made of writing and you're looking at their, at what they did that's cool. And um, maybe <laughs> yeah. it's like a mistake to like think that like the window pane is the cool thing. <laughs> Mm. Uh, so maybe that's the mistake uh, but maybe not so there's a question of whether writing is a medium it's just for how you share the ideas and you can share them any way you like or whether writing is a tool uh, a tool for thinking in which case it's not just a medium it's not that they had the ideas and they just gave them to you that way it's just a bucket it's that if they didn't have the paper to write it on and they hadn't gone through the process of revising and so on and, and rereading their own things, that they wouldn't have had those ideas in that way in the first place. And yeah. it, they may not even have delivered it to you in writing, frankly. They, they could have written the whole thing themselves and then spoken it to you later on. But the writing was how they developed the ideas. So if it's that, then okay, maybe there's a quite a serious argument that a, you know um, it's quite necessary or is at least very helpful. But again... If if that's what it's useful for, then maybe you never have to share that writing. So maybe publishing is worth distinguishing from writing. That's great. I like that. And I, I think that it would be a valid question whether there is something objectively better about writing to, to uh, clear out your thinking and create knowledge for yourself, or whether it's just a matter of taste, just like I told you right now, that... The way I learn is talking. I mean, that's why I have this goddamn podcast and I'm talking way too much all the time. I, that's what I like. I've never taken notes at university. All my, my uh, classmates did that frenetically. And I think it's also kind of a norm that you should take notes to learn. But uh, I never did that. What I did was annoy every single person in the class frequently by raising my hand and asking fairly dumb questions all the time. I want to talk about it. I want to, yeah, I want to discuss it with someone in real time. But yeah, I feel kind of relieved after hearing you say that because it, it gives me another 
Yeah, anti-should. You don't have to write because I coerced myself for years. I even wrote – I wrote uh, – this is embarrassing. I wrote <laughs> – I wrote a, a PDF like a uh, – what's it called? An ebook, Maybe a 100-page and like small pages but a 100-page ebook on confidence and how to develop it, which is hilarious because at the time – I knew all the stuff that I was writing, and I think there were some good stuff in there, perhaps, but I was not embodying that. I was, you know, faking it till you make it. And it was feeling like a fraud that finally made me stop that and not release it. But I wrote a, a book called, let's see what it was called. I like the name. It was called, oh, such a good name, man. I'm blanking. I'll, I'll have to put it in the title because I was really happy with it. But it was, uh, yeah, I'll send you a copy. I, I think you'll, uh, you can you can uh, PayPal me the money later. Conning confidence. Yeah, that would have been more accurate. Yes, but it was. Uh, I'm so angry right now. But uh, in any case, that's uh, yeah. No, I um, I think that's interesting. So everyone listening, you don't have to write. You don't have to write. You do have to get my confidence book though, because uh, it's good <laughs> I stuff. I didn't say you can't. I didn't say you shouldn't write. <laughs> okay, <laughs> that's what I got out of it because that's what I wanted to hear. So. Um, no, but um, yeah. So before we jump into the quick, before we jump into the Twitter questions, I have one more question for you myself, and that is, I have a vague uh, memory of you speaking about this on Logan's podcast, "The Fallible Animals." Uh, forgive me for not listening to that again. I don't remember what you talked about, but just the idea that I know you're interested in how to how to apply these principles of how knowledge grows into your daily life, how to use it to improve your life. And I know you gave me praise for the episode I made. I think it's the 12th episode with Bart Vanderhagen, the management consultant, who had actually implemented that in management consulting in how he helped companies grow knowledge practically in a very good way. And so, uh, yes, I'm curious how... How do you think uh, about Sierra in your own life, Deutschian critical rationalism, if I may call it that? How has that aided your own life, and how do you think about that? Uh, sure. Yeah, I think that um, – yeah, one thing to say as a caveat, I suppose, is that uh, it's never quite just like applying the ideas, but – but it's like saying, like, how can you apply general relativity to like your cooking? It's like, well, it's right. the right way to think about it. Uh, no, right. But – uh, if general relativity is true, um, and then you want to cook something really fast, I don't know. <laughs> maybe it comes up, you know, you want to cook it with yeah. neutrinos or something, maybe, maybe you should actually look into the equations. But um, at any rate, uh, that's just a caveat. But as far as like, um, uh, it, it is true that like, as you go through life, you have a bunch of commonsensical ideas about how to approach it, and a bunch of cultural norms and ideas. And uh, some of it, sometimes they run up against uh, and conflict with ideas mm. uh, that David has talked about and Popper talked about, um, ideas about how knowledge works in general. In particular, that's true of things like planning and habits and um, and that sort of thing. Um, so that's where I've most noticed it in my life. That I mean, that's a perfect segue to one of the questions from Twitter then, because I remember uh, I was yelling at you for answering this in the Twitter thread instead of saving it for the podcast. But the question was, 
Yeah. What are your current thoughts on plans and how do you plan with fallibility in mind? So please go ahead and reiterate what you try to say there on Twitter, sir. Well, I don't recall what I said exactly, but uh, thinking about it today, actually, I was thinking that um, the sort of the big conflict in that case between the commonsensical view and the Popperian kind of view is on the one hand, uh, the common sense view is planning is essential. Mm-hmm. How are you going to figure out what to do if you never think about it, think about the future? Uh, or how will the future be good if you never plan for it to be good? And then second, there's the <laughs> idea that the, or yeah, how, how will the future be good if you never consider it, let's say. Maybe that's a better way to put it. But mm-hmm. uh, then there's the idea that um, the future depends on the growth of knowledge or is you know, at least open to knowledge being created. And you can't predict tomorrow's ideas today. Otherwise, you'd have them today. So the future is unknowable because it's defined by ideas you don't have yet, Um, in which case, isn't it a futile exercise to try to plan, to predict the unknowable, uh, to predict the unpredictable? So that's the main conflict. And yeah, so so the the question is, how do you resolve that conflict? How is planning, is, is, yeah, the notion that planning is useful, a total mistake, and it's not, we should never do it? Mm -hmm. Um, Or is it that our understanding of it isn't, quite right i think that's the case and uh yeah so it was like a couple things to be said there is that on the one hand the future isn't wholly unpredictable some things are stable some things are stable because we want them to be stable and actively make them stable and even if knowledge is created tomorrow a new book is released the way that book is bought may not change (laughs) it might still be bought in dollars on amazon.com as it was before um despite that book having been published and knowledge having been created so not everything changes with every change. Um, so some things are more predictable. Uh, but nevertheless, with every kind of plan, you are implicitly making a prediction about the growth of knowledge. And some of those predictions may be better than others. David kind of makes a, a related point when he says, when you try to predict what a, a, you know, a distant star will do, you are implicitly making a prediction about what knowledge will be present there. Because if there's aliens next to that star, it may not blow up like you thought it would based on just the normal course of stellar evolution. Like, they'll stop that star exploding if there are people there. And if there aren't people there, then it won't. It'll explode like normal. But your prediction will depend on whether you correctly assess the presence of people. Likewise, when you're predicting plans, you might say, well, I'm going to make my plan tomorrow, implicitly assuming the dollars will still be the method of exchange. Yeah. Uh, And that's probably a good assumption. Um, But it is. (laughs) There are other things to be said, but that's uh, one of the main things. Right. So so if we concretize that a little bit, how do you plan with fallibility in mind? How does it look in practice for you? Like, do you have uh, long-term plans? Do you have like a vision that you strive towards? That's that's uh, uh, always uh, amenable, amenable and uh, yeah, it's always updating. It's something that you can change. It's fallible. It's, it's just a current theory of where you want to go. I usually use myself the idea of I don't like set goals. But I like a direction, like a compass. This is the direction I'm moving. Like, for instance, with the podcast, I don't have set goals. Some people think that you should be like, this is how much I should make uh, by the end of this year. And, you know, I should visualize that. I should do everything for that and uh, do that with different parameters. But to me, it's more like, no, I'm vibing in this direction. I like having the podcast. It's the same with my podcast episodes. I know, oh, I, I resonate with Carlos. I want to talk to him. He seems interesting. I have a few things that I might want to bring up, but I'm not concretizing it too much. Yeah, how how does that look for you in practice? 
Yeah, so, so I don't particularly have long-term plans. I have things that uh, I think are good. Um, you know, I think AGI is good and interesting, and so I kind of keep on with that. I like music. That keeps mm. on being good, so I keep doing that. In the past, I've thought that aging research would be good, and I'll keep on with that. Uh, and then my mind changed, and you know, I thought, okay, well, it doesn't really suit the kinds of things I want to do from a day-to-day perspective, so I'll do something else. Um, despite thinking that the high-level mission is you know, one of the best that uh, one can take on. So things can change as you, problems crop up. But uh, one of the things I think is actually quite deep in general is uh, at least hinted at, if not fully explained, by a common um, little uh, quip, which says, um, I think it's from like a, a, a general of some kind, but uh, he said like planning, uh, plans are useless, uh, planning is essential. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that my explanation of what's going on there and the truth that that tries to capture or point to is that uh, when you plan, you it's do a criticism, more than a, right? <laughs> uh, exactly. Um, yeah. You do more than just create a piece of paper with like some to dos on it. When you're engaged in planning, uh, you are creating a wide range of ideas, namely options. You're creating options that didn't exist before, very likely. And which, even if you choose one option and then change to another option later on, like, having created the options was a, a very good thing to have done. Secondly, you have created uh, ways of distinguishing between those options because as soon as you come up with 10 options, now you're curious which one is best and that may not be trivial. So now you have a whole set of ways for deciding between them. That one costs more, that one takes longer, et cetera, et cetera. And so even if particular details change, it's unlikely that, yeah, despite the fact that your conclusion Changed before. He said, I wanted to eat peanut butter sandwich. And uh, then that changes. Still, you may have considered <laughs> a bunch of different food items and everyone's food allergies and whatever else. And so now you're prepared with all the ideas required, or at least better than you would be if you hadn't started planning, to solve the problem that that new situation presents. So that's what I think that quote gets at. Plans are useless. Planning is essential. That's great. That's going to be my next lower back tattoo right there. I'm wondering what the context would be like. So when somebody sees that, they're like, hmm, <laughs> what's uh, planning is useless. It's just to planning, attract guys. Yeah. No, <laughs> that's a weird tattoo. To have. That almost entices me to, to, to have it just for that confusion that it will create. Just Not like, that people yeah. see my lower back all the time at the office, but... Yeah, man. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. Um, do you have tattoos, by the way? Only internally. <laughs> right, yeah. That's something that I've been... Because uh, I have uh, quite a few tattoos. Like, I think it's eight or nine. And uh, I'm actually... Dis- I'm going to disclose. Uh, I have... My first tattoo is on my... Like, alongside my left oblique. Uh, super cool, of course. And it says, no regrets which is uh, super original. I think it's original to me. I created that phrase. And uh, when, I have my, <laughs> when I have my pants and my underwear on, which is rarely, I, you only see regrets. <laughs> and I just see regrets. So it's all good, man. Was that I regret it, though. Yeah. Like, no. the, like the pants thing? Like No, no, no. I had no idea and I I regret it, so that's funny. <laughs> yeah. It reminds me of like the thing in like that movie, uh, I guess it's like the Joker or uh, something like that where uh 
Yeah, there's a bunch of words where you can change, like add or remove one letter, and it's hilarious. Like, so in this case, it was like laughter. They turn it into slaughter by adding an S. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> There's yeah, all kinds of things of that. like that. Actually, there's another one, Nathan, for you. It's hard probably to explain like the full thing. But at any rate, like <laughs> Nathan Fielder in this clip ends up building a crazy suit that is pump that pumps chili from sacks of like plastic around his body because he's trying to get around regulations for serving food at like baseball events and stadiums. So he's going <laughs> to okay. pretend to be an o- obese man, but all his fat is actually chili that he's going to sell to people and dispense <laughs> via a tube from his arm. Uh, so he's wearing this long shirt and out of it is a tube that like dispenses chili. And then he says, but these games are long and I won't be able to, you know, you, while in the suit, I can't use the restroom. So I need to have a whole other system to deal with that, you know, with uh, excretions and so on. And he's like, and then I need a way to dispose of that via a tube also. And so he looks at like his arm and he has labels and there's got two tubes. Oh no, dude! And it's and it says, uh, yeah. You look at it, and it says poo. And then he moves the sleeve back a little bit, and one of them says not poo. (laughs) (laughs) So it's just so so ready, and it's you know it's chilly. So you anyway. (laughs) It's great. That's great. Hey, man, that's also something I've noticed. My favorite kind of people are, this sounded very racist, like the start of the most racist thing I've ever said. Uh, no, but my favorite kinds of people are the people who uh, is are really curious and loves uh, being nerdy about ideas and talking about diving deep into ideas like this. But also they're, they're the, the, the silliest. They like to have a silly goose time, as Chris D'Elia would say. And... Uh, I've noticed that that curiosity often comes, it seems to be a package deal a lot of the time. People who are really curious and excited about understanding the world also seem to have a great sense of humor and uh, take things very lightly in general. I'm just generalizing a lot here, but yeah, you fit that description. I'm having a great time, man. What's the name of this race? Uh, That's a good question. Silly Gusificus or something. Yeah, Gusificus Silius. Yeah, that's a good one. I'm. Uh, I've already classified. I guess. Yeah, and I've al- al- already classified myself as uh, Homo interruptus as well. So I have to tie those in together somehow. What, is, what does that one mean? Oh, okay. You're like you're I just interrupt eye. people all the time. Yeah, you okay, see, okay, okay, yeah. right there. Gotcha. But um, yeah, okay. So let's move on to the big one then, which I'm sure many people are wondering about. But the question is. And it's very wide spanning here. So you can choose to disclose whatever you're most interested in right now. But uh, yeah, the tweet was, I think uh, Carlos has spent some time thinking about the creativity AGI problem. And I would be interested in hearing him discuss his ideas on the subject. So yeah, maybe you could actually uh, preface that with how does researching this look to you? How does researching, because I'm assuming you're doing that in private, in your own home, you're not funded, you're not doing it within academia. So how does that look like? And then also, yeah, what what is the progress you're making right now? What what theories are you working on on this? Uh, sure. So it looks a lot like me making music and stuff. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> like literally, it's just like I'm just making music and not doing research. Uh, no, but... Uh... <laughs> right. I didn't get that. I was just sitting here waiting for <laughs> you to continue. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, what's that quote? Something like you should, uh, you know, jump into some scientific problem in the most like 
barefoot, irreverent way possible. Oh, right, wait, 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 wait. Hold on, hold on. I have it on my uh, desktop as my background, so I'm not going to let you slaughter it here. Study hard what interests you the most in the most undisciplined, irreverent, or original manner possible. Feynman. I, I do the version where you claim that's what you're doing. But <laughs> <laughs> right. So, uh, so you may call it not doing the thing, but um, teach their own. So, yeah, I mean, um, in that case, uh, it, it's kind of um, at, at periods I'll do a lot. Of, I'll you know get really interested in one thing and then leave it alone for a while. So a while back, I had read uh, Richard Dawkins' Selfish Gene, and that sparked some new ideas that were pretty interesting for me. Do you care to share? Yeah, they're sort of incidental, I suppose, but um, I can share them. So uh, the, the last chapter, one of the last chapters, goes into memes. And um, I, I was surprised that uh, it, it has a slightly different emphasis than David Deutsch's chapter on memes in the beginning of Infinity. Maybe I just haven't reread David's book in a while, so maybe it's in there. But um, at any rate, uh, what struck me when I was reading Dawkins' book was the emphasis on uh, not just you know, memes are genes for ideas, let's say. But that chapter is really saying we've looked at replicators in the context of genes, but we also can think of the question, are there other kinds of replicators in general? Um, And he's like, well, yeah, memes are one. And for all we know, maybe there are others. So this is a very open-ended kind of thing, uh, which is very interesting. Um, So that's more of like an incidental hmm kind of thing. Uh, but yeah. in particular, he also mentions a program he wrote called the uh, Blind Watchmaker. And uh, this program is cool looking, by the way. It's just like it's a, it's visually interesting what it produces. But he just coded up some simple rules, some simple genes to get a, a feeling for like what kinds of uh, things contribute to biological forms, things like symmetry and repetition and, and that sort of thing. Like, like if you encode that somehow in your genes, then suddenly... Uh, evolution kind of takes it in a different direction because now you can say, I just want like, I want to repeat things a certain way or reflect them a certain way with a certain kind of symmetry. And uh, that tends to be quite effective in producing like new forms which aren't just like random jumbles of atoms. So if, if mm. you say like, I'm going to mutate you and just add a bunch of atoms uh, in some random configuration, that might not be very good. But if I say, I just want to take the program which already repeats some aspect of, let's say, your ribs, let's say. So instead of having, I don't know how many ribs you have, but uh, let's say if it's 10 and then you have like 12 or something, like now I've just changed the program to repeat one more time or a few more times than it already did. Uh, that's, so that's a very structured and very constrained kind of mutation. And so he talks about this in a paper called The Evolution of Evolvability, which is kind of interesting. And I probably won't be able to do justice to like the meaning of the paper, but was what was cool to it, uh, cool to me about it was like he wrote this paper that or this program that fits like in a paragraph like it's super simple this program that he wrote and it produces all these cool uh, animals it's like oh there's a spider there's a fly there's this there's that uh, there's a centipede and he's like and it's just like tiny tweaks to this program so basically what i'm saying is he got a lot for a little he wrote this simple arguably quite dumb program that is just it fits on less than a page uh, and yet it produces all this cool stuff I thought, ah, well, I wonder if I could do that for memes, mm. right? Some simple program that just like, just again, it's just getting at one basic thing. It's not, he didn't recreate life or anything. Like you can't run that program and create an actual, you know, elephant or something. But nevertheless, he, he got at something that was central. It has reach. To me. 
And yeah, so it was cool to see that that was just how much mileage he got out of that simple program. And um, so I had some specific ideas about memes kind of based on that, that were like, just to share one, maybe not to bore you too much, but uh, <laughs> he, yeah. So, so the idea is how do memes differ from genes in a fundamental way? And one way is that uh, they're abstractions, I guess. And so if you say, um, for instance, let's, let's ask a question like, we have two organisms. Do they have the same genes? Uh, that question is trivial to answer if you can sequence their genes. You can then just compare all the letters. Do they match? You know, is it an yeah. A, T, C, or G right there? And what about the other one? Same? Okay, same. Do that for all the genes and you're done. Uh, but when it comes to memes, try to consider the same thing. Like the representation of, like, so let's say in our neurons, might be totally different. So even if you and I know for the same, for the thing, same abstraction, you mean? Do you, do you mean the same abstraction might uh, be physically instantiated in different ways? Might express itself in different ways in our brains, or exactly? Yeah, um, and and even that, by the way, this is kind of the curious thing is like you may have to put like the same abstraction in quotes, kind of in yeah. quotes. You know, it's like yeah. is is it the same? Like how how would you know it's the same? Um, what, how how do you tell? Uh, because even again, we could say it's the same abstraction, but at the very least, it's probably going to like take a di very different role in your mind and mine. Like if I learn about like a new guitar riff, like let's say from Rush, like I like Rush, so if I learn a bit of their songs, so I learn some riff from Rush. You could learn the same riff, riff from Rush, but maybe you don't like Rush that much. Like you, it's like your tenth favorite band or something, if if, uh, if even on your list. Um, but it's my first favorite. So now, like. What's the chances that's going to get played again? What's the chance it's going to affect our composition going forward? What's the chance we're going to share it with somebody else? Very different. Even though it's ostensibly the same thing, it's not quite the same thing in the full context of our mind. So I think that that's one, just really just an illustration of something which maybe isn't all that important in itself, but it starts to hint at like, hmm, there are some really fundamental differences that maybe aren't that complicated. Maybe you don't need a supercomputer to kind of illustrate these points and maybe all of like the weird, unintuitive downstream consequences of them. Um, you just need to make a simple program that kind of like says, okay, well, suddenly, for instance, you can't compare the, the levels like you can, uh, representation like you can in genes. And then you keep following that train of thought. And I expect you get somewhere pretty cool, just like he did in that paper by writing a very simple program and following it up. Mm, so, so is that the line you're going down right now, trying to experiment with yourself? Uh, well, I don't really do much programming uh, with the research stuff, but um, at some point I probably will figure I, I should. But right now, the, the, just that thought is kind of interesting in itself. Like, ju just thinking of like how you would write the program and what you'd want to do, like why you'd want to do it. Um, like, to take his case as an analogy, like uh, Dawkins' case, he was looking at, I guess you might call them higher level mutations, mutations which enable other mutations in a nice way. In particular, like other mutations that have a good chance of being good because they depend on prior knowledge of things like symmetry and so on. Like a mutation that is just arbitrary, collection of atoms, like I mentioned earlier, just a blob of matter, it's unlikely to be very useful. But if it's like another rib, that might be useful. Um, mm. So suddenly, um, the evolution of repetition means that subsequent mutations uh, may affect the the whole system in a way that which is kind of semi-reasonable and therefore isn't likely just to be totally horrible and kill you immediately. 
Um, so he had that very specific question in mind and was able to to delve into that. And so I think that there's something similar to be done here. Yeah. So I'm curious, not knowing that much in general about artificial general intelligence or computer science, um, I'm curious. I've read some of machine learning and deep learning, reinforcement learning, these current methods that are very in vogue and by some people are being touted as the end-all be-all, and this is definitely going to be the way. Because of where we're coming from knowledge uh, creation-wise, this looks uh, somewhat inductivist or, or quite a lot inductivist or Bayesian to me, and that that that's problematic epistemologically. So do you think there's anything to these current research methods in our quest for finding artificial general intelligence, creating people, or is it more a matter of being able to emulate other programs that run on our brains, like uh, yeah, perception, facial recognition, things like that, that they are clearly good at? Maybe there's some element to what our brain is doing that has the same kind of uh, structure as these algorithms. But yeah, what do you think? Is it a blind entity or useful? Oh, it's undoubtedly useful. Uh, it's at least proved itself in that regard. Just in the more general sense of, of useful, like it's useful for lots of things in the world right now. But as far as the project of AGI, like I guess there's like um, a division to be made, one between the engineering and one maybe what you might call the philosophy or the logic of it. And for the engineering, it seems very useful again, like it's already useful now. So I think it'll be useful in the future. Uh, yeah, we have a vision system that works a certain way, and it, it's not the same way as just like arithmetic or something in logic. Uh, you know, it's it's not just two plus two equals four. It's this whole complicated uh, sort of hierarchy of processing that happens. Uh, first, understand images quickly. So I think that there's some headway that's been made there uh, for that kind of thing. So as special purpose units of a of a larger mind, that seems like uh, modern algorithms can only be good, um, at least as options to to put into a mind. But then there's this other question, the other half of the divide that I mentioned, which is the sort of logic or philosophy of it. And there, it's not so clear because the um, there, there's questions you can ask about like a modern algorithm, let's say, where you put data in at one end, you do a process, and um, part of the process involves you going through a loop of you know changing all the internal weights of, and parameters of this model. Um, so that... It um, maximizes the uh, quality of the result according to some uh, parameter you set, so some objective function you set. You know, like I yeah. wanted to correctly predict that that's an apple, not an orange, you know, that kind of thing. And so in that case, that whole picture is, is very unlike what happens in a, in a mind. And you could sort of say that that's like a function. It takes things in, puts things out. It's not a person or an agent. That's one thing. But the other thing that's probably more important than that then this sort of like, is it an agent that is, you know, sort of can act in the world and be somewhat independent is sort of the, uh, the relationship between the ideas involved. Um, and what I mean by that is that if you look at these things, they're like a collection of parameters. So that's kind of like, you know, and those parameters learn something like, you know, they start off in such a way that like they cannot cause the algorithm they're part of to win at chess, let's say. Like they're a, a crappy chess player. And by the end of their training process, they can beat the best. Mm -hmm. So some knowledge has been encoded in this, you know, bag of parameters that we'll call the model. And that model has been trained by this other thing that's outside the model, this objective function, which says you, you either won the game or you lost the game that you just played. 
And, you know, then there's this other part that it says, yeah, here's how you can tweak yourself to maybe be better. But, but that thing that's lying on the outside of the model uh, that says you want to win chess games um, and you did or you didn't, uh, that is not being affected by this whole process. That's fixed. So yeah. the thing to note here is it's like that, the rule we talked about in the beginning. Exactly. The, yeah, the, the key thing to note there is that there's one thing here that is, is subject to no kind of change. Um, and not only does it not change, it can't change. There's no mechanism to cause it to change. Now, there are other kinds of um, machine learning situations where this isn't quite how it works. You might make an argument that um, other algorithms uh, can change, like every part of the system can change and sort of co-evolve in an interesting way. And so maybe those are something to, to look more into. But nevertheless, there's this question of what uh, are the forces or mechanisms of variation and selection that a, any given part of the system is exposed to? And... You know, in your own head, we're having a conversation here, and any idea can come up. And I think it's probably true to say, like, none of your ideas are, are held from criticism in a certain way. Like, there are rationalities in human minds and so on. But for the most part, I could just say whatever, and you can be like, oh, and there isn't a strict hierarchy, let's say, where only high-level ideas can dare encroach upon low-level ones or vice versa or something. It's just a big bag of ideas. Any of them can interact in any different way. And if there's an error in one of them... It can be pointed out by some other idea. It's just a big mm. bag of ideas all interacting like a bunch of animals in some ecosystem. It's just a free-for-all. Right. Um, but that isn't the case when you have a model and a whole separate objective function, the you know, metric that tells you what's good and what's bad. There's a whole set, like they're not even, they're just like categorically different. It's not a free-for-all at all. So I think that's one illustration or one kind of conceptual problem uh, to think about and maybe applies more to some algorithms more than others and, and this kind of thing. But that's one like big glaring thing where you say, well, I don't think that kind of algorithm is even in the ballpark of what we need, however mm. useful it is for many purposes. So is there any work currently going on or any uh, kind of uh, method or approach that is encroaching more on this that you're talking about here or, or pointing out that problem or... Yeah, I don't know. I mean, um, what, what's interesting is that there's a wide world out there of people doing machine learning research, and um, very few of them, if any, uh, will talk about Karl Popper, let's say, and and his ideas. Uh, but nevertheless, um, just as in, in ordinary life, some people approach those ideas closer or farther away. Um, they're more or less like those ideas, or uh, more or less consistent with them, let's say. And yeah. uh, so sometimes it'll even be ironically the case that somebody will use like even more empiricist language. Like they'll say uh, there's a, <laughs> an inductive bias. Uh, it's my favorite one. Yeah, yeah. And, and yet it's isn't that the opposite? <laughs> like in yeah. the way we use it, like it's a way to use deduction or something like that. Well, uh, theorized testing yeah. or something. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, in the one I'm thinking of, it's um, a paper called Building Machines That Learn and Think Like People by Brendan Lake and Joshua Tenenbaum, um, if anybody wants to go look it up. And it's a really cool paper, and it's a long paper with a lot of cool stuff in it. But I think in that in that one, it mentions this idea of inductive biases, which, as you say, yeah, it's ironic because I would describe them as like prior theories or just like, you know, inbuilt theories. So, so their terminology is a little off, but when you read it, you say, oh, okay, that's what's going on. And that's actually very cool. Like it's not 
you know, it doesn't solve the problem of AGI because uh, it's a built-in theory that itself isn't subject to change. Mm. But nevertheless, you have thrown some theories in the mix. You haven't decided we're just going to look at data. And what's also cool about it is they show like how effective it can be to operate in a way where you start with these theories and then you work with them because they highly constrain your solutions to problems. And in particular, they have a, a problem that they set up that is kind of interesting called the characters challenge we can go into if you want. But, uh, but yeah, it's cool how sometimes people are preparing without realizing it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I mean, the terminology doesn't, doesn't matter. It's, uh, that's the most important part, what you mentioned there. But um, I mean, it matters in the sense that we can actually make ourselves understood and we can communicate between each other. But as we all know, uh, especially people listening to this podcast, uh, Thomas Kuhn showed us that we are unable to communicate between each other when we're in different paradigms. And thus, maybe there, it doesn't even make sense, right? We should not talk about stuff. Haha, <laughs> <laughs> are you being ironic there? Sarcastic. Yeah, yeah, I was. Yeah. Thanks for uh, yeah. picking up. <laughs> I just got to make sure, you know, yeah. I'm not sure if like maybe your, your mind gets weighed down by work and like, yeah, say, maybe he's just that dumb. Yeah, you just got to check in. That's cool. No, but so, uh, yeah, so I have uh, uh, two more questions here before I have to uh, give in to uh, fatigue. And uh, let's see here. We have one that I think that you have basically answered already that I would like to try to recapitulate for myself here, the answer, which is, is it self-coercive to keep a schedule? And now I would say then after this discussion that it's not self-coercive to keep a schedule as long as, uh, similar to what we we're just talking about now, the parameters for the schedule are under criticism and they're evolving as well. So as long as you're open to changing the schedule as new knowledge and new problems pop up, then it's nothing coercive about it and it can be very useful. Would that be uh, in the ballpark of what you would say? Uh, exactly. And I could go maybe Woohoo! <laughs> <laughs> there we go. Finally, Waking up the neighbors. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and uh, yeah. I my voice doesn't do that, unfortunately. Um, but no. maybe that's just because I'm spiritually, you know, what is it, uh poor. But um <laughs> nonetheless, uh yeah, impoverished. But yeah, one thing I would add to that that's maybe a bit concrete uh, that is helpful, I think, is that um I read a book a while back from a guy named Tynan. That's the name he goes by. He's got a few good books that are very nice, like one on friendship and another on habits and other things. But uh, one of the rules that he described in his book is never skip twice uh, for one of his habits. And um, one of the things I like about this is that in the discussion of it, he kind of points to the fact that it's like, it's not that if you skip it once, you should like, you know, bear down and really get to grips. It's like, you should change the habit. Like if, if you said do 100 push-ups and one day you skipped, you said, well, maybe the next, maybe maybe bring it down to 50 and just go with that for now. Like learn from the thing that caused you to not, you know, be able to put a check mark beside the done box of that habit. Mm. Um, so when I look at that, I look at the idea of creating a plan or a list of habits, um, not as a um, responsibility or a thing that you're committing to. It's not a commitment. It's a prediction. It's like saying, I, I think the sun will rise next Tuesday, and I wrote it down. And so when it happens, I can check and see, like, oh, I'm not fooling myself. That's what I wrote down, and it either was borne out or the prediction was wrong. Um, so when you say I'm going to do 100 push-ups a day, 
that embodies multiple things, like a theory that's a thing that would be good, and I think that would be possible, and I think that you you know will work in your life, uh, and that you'll want to do it. But that prediction might turn out wrong. Like it may be the fact that like you're just too tired by the time you would need to do the hundred push-ups, and so fifty actually works, and you can do it. And the first day you skip, you realize that. And rather than saying, yeah, double down or just forget it, it's like, ah, I now have a very precise and highly calibrated instrument in my list of written habits I want to continue doing for detecting when there's a problem. It's very precise now. It's like, because if you didn't have that list, you might do some push-ups one day and not another. And you might never realize that there was a conflict between like your desire for rest, your desire for fitness. Um, And you might never therefore fix that conflict and get both rest and fitness by creating a new idea about doing it in the morning, let's say, the push-ups. But you will discover that if you give a precise description of what you think should happen, and then you discover you can't follow it through, and then you can fix that problem, either by changing the goal or changing your situation. Yeah, this is very much in contrast with, very much in contrast with the idea that yeah, not even that this is something I want to do. This is something that I've decided is good for me. And so I should just pummel myself into doing this. And that I have to kind of work outside in to force myself and create a habit of forcing myself to do it until I don't even question it anymore. It all sounds very inf- infallibilist. And uh, I think in terms of epistemology, it doesn't hold up because you can always be wrong about what you should do or shouldn't do. So then you're effectively inhibiting your own progress in your life. But um, yeah, I like the way you put that. Yeah, okay, final question, mate. Are you ready? Let's have it. Yep. So, and this is a question I think is beautiful and that I should ask anyone else who is into critical rationalism going forward, actually. See, I'm making a rule. It works. Uh, yeah. So, what, what do you most commonly find yourself disagreeing with other crit rats about? So, essentially, what do you think the the mainstream crit rats are wrong about? Because we all like to agree, like uh, in the sense of <laughs> we all think optimism is great, and we all think that knowledge grows in this certain way. But it's fun to find some disagreements. Yeah, I mean, it's. Uh... I guess common to see that uh, people agree on like fundamentals. I mean, to disagree on them would be to kind of, uh, in many cases, say that like David's book was wrong, let's say, which he worked hard to make things not wrong. So, uh, <laughs> so it's quite a it would be quite an achievement to to spot some some errors in there, and um, some people have, and uh, you know, it's uh, interesting when they do. But so there, those fundamental theories about epistemology, that's kind of one thing. Where things get complicated and contentious, I suppose, in a good way, is how to apply those ideas. And um, so as soon as you say, well, let's apply these ideas to habits, well, suddenly lots of things come up. There's a lot of common sense in people's general approach to habits, like they've been around for a while and not irrationally so. So there's something there. And what is there? is not self-evident. So we might disagree about what is there and quite how to square this idea, for instance, that the future is unpredictable with the idea that you have to make some predictions about the future in order to you know, have a good life and so on and make plans. So as soon as you get into the details of any particular issue, then much more than theoretical epistemology is at issue. 
There's all sorts mm. of detailed facts and detailed theories that aren't about epistemology that you're then trying to square with the epistemology. So all of those cases are sort of rife with uh, with disagreement in a good way. Yeah. Do you have any specific example there that you see a lot where you might disagree? Just to concretize it a bit. Yeah. Uh, let me think. Yeah, like, do, are there any that come to mind for you? Like, uh, let's feel free to uh, tag team this one. Yeah, yeah. So I guess that I spoke to Michael Golding, the psychiatrist, and he has uh, a gripe with people who refer to the problems are soluble, universal computation, to kind of dismiss how physiological things can interfere with thinking and actually matter and be salient. Do you know what I mean? Like when people are just saying that mental illness is all, yeah, it's all ideas and, and medication is is not a thing or, or physiology doesn't matter because ultimately you're a universal explainer and so on. Um, so I guess I, I, I have a gripe with that somewhat, but... Hmm. Yeah, so I, that's another good case, yeah, where there's a lot of specific details there and sort of the first, yeah, I guess the, the crit pushback in a way is that is it pushing against the idea that it's all chemicals and that's sort of like the reductionist mistake. So it's a pushback against that. Hmm. Um, but then as you said, with Michael, it's like, well, you know, chemicals are real though. Yeah. <laughs> that, <laughs> yeah. That, that, that is one thing to be said. And um, yeah, there, there is a system here that has multiple things going on at different levels of abstraction and they all have to go right for things to go right. And if things go wrong at any one of those levels, then there's a problem. And interactions or um, interventions in that system can also take place at any one of those levels. At high level, I can just have a conversation with you. Or at a low level, I can give you a drug or you know, 3D print a new spleen for you, or whatever the case may be. But those are different levels of abstraction and different kinds of ways I could intervene in you know, how your system is working. And it's not um, going to... And, and the other thing is that like a, a high-level program, I think in terms of computers a lot um, for this, like yeah. has to affect the low level in some way. And um, so the things at the low level have to be working right. Yeah, and so so any of these interventions might work. Um, so you can't discount the idea of giving you a drug being helpful. And so he pushes back in that direction. Yeah, the, the high-level program, uh, for instance, if it wants me to express a certain emotion, it's way to manifest that in the physical vehicle that happens to be this body that I'm in is to utilize the uh, release of certain neurotransmitters, say, which is why some recreational drugs can can really make you feel super good. And if you don't have, let's say, if you have a inefficient way of creating these neurotransmitters that you want to release, then it doesn't matter how much the program is trying you 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 effectively don't have the you can't express that in this physiological medium and so even though the ideas are the central thing you need the biology to work efficiently to be able to express that is that somewhat correct yeah i think so i mean um yeah it's uh i guess i guess the key picture to have in mind is just that there is this whole uh, you know ladder of abstraction of things going on and uh, so, first of all, that thing exists. There's high-level things and low-level things and things in between. Hmm. Uh, and secondly, there isn't a fixed direction of causation 
Yes. Like, which things can affect other things. No, that's important. Uh, so I think that's two things worth noting. And um, maybe a lot of the complications or confusions come from kind of ignoring those things. I'm, I'm not sure. But uh, I haven't given it much yeah. thought, I should say. So, Right, right. I make speak nonsense. Yeah, <laughs> I doubt that. But uh, But nonsense is welcome on this podcast as well. It's all conjectural, right? And it's a silly goose time, damn it. That's I'm going to keep to that. I want this podcast to be more and more uh, of a silly goose time. And uh, I feel like... Do you want my final pun? Yeah. Yeah, no, thanks for interrupting my point there. That's great. That's great. (laughs) But but sure, give me your stupid pun. That's great. By the way, uh, yeah, so I thought of a pun because you were talking earlier about like moral worth. Mm. Uh, Do you recall what what you were saying? I think the point was that you had none, right? Mm, okay, yeah. But do I have any moral girth? <laughs> Which is the real question, yeah. No, yeah, so so thanks for uh, both uh, giving me your thoughts on these topics. You have a really interesting mind. I love talking to you. It kind of feels like on Twitter when – I don't follow anyone on Twitter anymore because I think I'm so goddamn cool. But uh, You are. Uh, <laughs> thanks, man. And uh, yeah, So, but I feel like every time – you chip in, there's like a, ooh, wow. Like I, I'm having a discussion on Twitter with, with some people and I'm just waiting for Carlos to chip in, like the authority you are, like the true source of knowledge that you are. No, but he feels like you're the kind of person who has really thought things through. And I feel like you're kind of in the periphery, one of the people who understands this worldview that I'm so enamored with uh, the best, Perhaps not that it's a competition, but also it is a competition, right? And you're winning, but um, no. So I, I really, <laughs> yeah, I really appreciate appreciate talking to you, and uh, also it's really fun to have some uh, some some good jokes in there. And so you're uh, saying I have not only moral girth but intellectual girth. Oh, definitely that that okay. you do, and I think they might Wonderful. be uh, somewhat uh, intertwined as well. We need. Uh, more people who, who with intellectual girth. But um, yeah, man. So thanks a lot. I hope I get to talk to you again. This was uh, a blast. <laughs>